welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Good morning. My name is Tony. I am the site pastor of our Bolton congregation. And today I will be reading from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Does God love? It's a question a lot of people ask. Um, I think it's actually a question people ask even more than they ask, does God exist? It's maybe the question behind that. Like, what kind of a God is God? Does he love? Philosophers have been asking it for centuries. Um, people ask it as they are trying to debate or understand who God is or how people might have religious faith. Um, what kind of a God is God? 
Um, and does he love? Because if he's God who has ultimate power and authority, presumably over all things, we want to know that he's good and that he's loving. And, and maybe even the question more importantly, that's not just about philosophy or religion, but an existential one. Does God love me? Like, is his, is his posture or his face towards me or his actions towards me going to be loving? Is God loving and does he love me? E- even in the situation that we're in right now as we're all kind of stuck in our homes, you know, watching this and taking this in and trying to obey the laws of our land and, and have social distancing, maybe one of the friction points you've experienced, either because you're on your own or because you're not on your own, is a lack of love in your life. Maybe you've been feeling that as you feel isolated or cut off, or maybe feeling alone because you are on your own, or even though you're surrounded with people in your own home, you feel alone. Maybe it's actually brought to light the fact that some of the relationships in your life that are supposed to be loving are not feeling so much like that. And so then when it comes to God, we're like, we have to know, is is he loving? Does God love? Because if he isn't, he doesn't, I'm out. You know, because maybe you'd say, well, I have enough authority figures in my life. I have enough people who kind of um, have, give rules, or even if God's just a wise old man on a mountain doling out advice, I can get wisdom. I can get advice from other places, but love is what I need. And maybe you're in a stage or in a season or in an experience right now where you're like, more than anything else, I need to know, does God love? And it's a question people will talk about and debate and maybe even sort of go, well, um, who really knows? Like sometimes people say that, well, who, who really knows? Uh, whether You can't really know whether God is love or what, what God is like, so we can debate it, but no one can really know. Well, one of the things that is, is our premise, not only as people of God, as followers of Jesus, but in this series that we are in calling History Maker, we are saying that, no, we can actually know. We don't need to throw up our hands with questions about God and say, well, who really knows? Because we have the good news of Jesus Christ. The, the four biographies written, um, and we explained a little bit last week about the genre of literature that are the stories of Jesus. It's historiography. It's, it's biography, um, going back in history about the person of Jesus. And each of the writers of Jesus' biography used the word gospel, which is translated good news, the good news of Jesus Christ, in an attempt to answer for us and to say, if you look at all of history— All of the ups and downs and the good and bad of history, over the banner of history, we can actually say it is good news because of Jesus. And last week, we began with the premise that's saying one of the reasons it's good news or the beginning point of the good news is that God has become flesh in Jesus, that Jesus has come to show us who God is. So we don't actually have to throw up our hands and say, well, who really knows what God is like? Before Christ, we we could say that. Who really knows? But that now, as Jesus has come and become flesh, he's actually come to show us who God is. So we have questions about who God is. We look at Jesus. And it is one of the reasons we're actually exploring the life of Jesus. And the premise of this whole series is saying, it's not just history. It's his story that has changed your story. It's the history of his life that has changed your life and my life forever. 
And so throughout this series, actually, we're going to be doing some Q&R at the end of each of the messages or just near the end. Um, question and response. The response may be, I don't know, good question. But there's a number there for you that you can text in as you have those questions, as you're trying to uh, think about, okay, well, as I'm talking, maybe there's things coming up that you can text those in, and we're going to take some time uh, to answer those at the end. But today, we actually want to get into this question and, and answer, does, does Jesus answer the question for us about the love of God. Like, is God loving? Does God love? And does God love me? And we begin, actually, the answer to this question with, with the title that Jesus was given by the biographies that wrote about him that, that other people talked to him about, this idea of son of God. And we actually talked about it last week in terms of saying this was the title that the angels gave him as they announced, like before he was coming to earth, they were saying he's coming as the son of God. And if you want to go last week, there's lots of reasons we addressed as to why that was such an important title and an essential title for who he is. But what's interesting about this, Jesus as the son of God was not just a title, it was actually an identity. And one of the things you'll see as you read through the book of Luke, and I would encourage you, if you've never read it or if you've read it many times, to be tracking with our, our blog, our Reconnect, Daily Reconnect online at thewell.ca, because we're actually reading that together as a community. We believe that that's one of the ways that we're meant to read scripture is together in community, and that what you're reading on a daily basis actually helps you prepare as you come to the weekly gathering that we have. We're going to be walking through this uh, Luke's account of Jesus. That we find early on, Luke writes about, this wasn't just a title. We see actually when Jesus gets baptized in Luke chapter 3, that the eyewitnesses around him, and Luke writes after the fact that there was this encounter where it says, heaven opened and God the Father spoke and said about Jesus, this is my son whom I love. In other words, the very first words that God speaks in that Luke records for us is God saying, this son of God is my son and I love him. I'm pleased with him. And so we see the Son of God title was not just a title, it was an identity that Jesus was the beloved Son of God um, that the Father in heaven loved well. Interestingly, we go on in chapter 4, and Luke begins to write about the temptation that Jesus faces from the devil in the desert, <clears throat> and one of the repeated sort of things that the devil is poking at, which is what he does when he tempts us, he pokes again and again over something, is if you're the Son of God, if you're the Son of God, if you're the Son of God. So there's this repeated kind of focus on Jesus, not just title, but identity as the Son of God. You know, chapter 3 is God saying, you are my son, I love you. And then the devil in chapter 4 is calling that into question. Are you the Son of God? Does God really love you? And, and we can, maybe many of us can relate to that. Yeah, that's a burning question in our minds. It was for Jesus as, the, as he was tempted with that because he was the Son of God and he called God his Father. And that's the other interesting thing is you see, not just the baptism of Jesus, not just the temptation of Jesus, but it's a repeated theme that Luke writes about as he describes the teachings of Jesus. That Jesus actually, when he was teaching his followers, and they said, how to teach us to pray, he says, here's how you should pray. Our Father. Maybe some of you grew up in a tradition where the prayer was called the Our Father, and it's actually a beautiful name for that prayer because Jesus was not only saying, yeah, I'm the Son of God and God is my Father, you should call him your Father as well. He's your Father too. And that word, um, Father, that Jesus uses at the beginning of the prayer, maybe you've heard this before, it was translated from the Greek word Abba, which means Daddy. It, 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 is, a, it, is, it is not 
father. It is daddy. It is an expression of a, a word that maybe if you have a child and they're having a bad dream in the middle of the night, they call out daddy. Or when they, hopefully when my kids are still young enough, they still like me. Um, so when I come home, you know, they run daddy. It's, it's an expression of intimacy, of informality, of closeness in relationship, and a spontaneous expression. And so interesting of all the names that Jesus uses to describe God, he uses this word more often than any other. And it is interesting because if you know the Old Testament, if you know Jewish history and their relationship with God, God had many names. He gave himself many names and they used different names. And if you read the Psalms and the prayers that David wrote and other Psalm writers, they use different names of God. And Jesus as a God-fearing Jew raised in a God-fearing Jewish family would have known all the names of God. And yet the one he uses more often than any other is Abba. Not only when he talks about God and to God, but he tells his followers, hey, this is how you are supposed to talk to God. He is your father. This is actually really significant even when you consider the broader Greco-Roman context that, that Jesus was in. Luke was actually a Greek, and so when he's writing his gospel, he's writing to a broader audience, not just a Jewish audience. And fathers in the Greco-Roman world were not considered to be loving. They were authoritarian. They were disciplinarians. They were owners, not just of the businesses or property or whatever, but they were considered even owners of their wife and their children and their slaves. And as such, they treated them often as owners. Fathers in those days were known to be harsh and abusive um, towards their slaves, towards their children. And so this, the, the question of does a father love wasn't even a question. The answer probably would have been no in that context in Greco-Roman culture. And Jesus comes along about God and saying, you know, this, he's your daddy. You can cry out to him. You can call. In fact, that's how you should address him when you talk to him, when you pray is daddy, father, Abba. And so this is so significant um, as Jesus begins to explain to us and show us who God is and what God is like. But it actually creates some problems. Um, in fact, um, this thing starts to come to a head for Jesus in terms of how he is describing who God is. Um, because as he's talking and interacting with the people around him, the religious leaders are keeping a close eye on him. And you'll find uh, in Luke, um, he, as you read the, the gospel, you'll find there's categories of people that are always being referred to. There's the crowds, just the broader group of people who would have been a mixed bag of people, mixed religious backgrounds, mis mixed ethnic backgrounds, the general populace who's listening. There's the disciples, Jesus' inner circle, those who are following him closely, who he's teaching. And then there's the Pharisees, religious leaders, teachers of the law. You'll see, and, and there are different groups of people, but they represent kind of one community. They were the keepers of who God is, the teachers of the law, um, the Pharisees. They were the experts in God. They were the ones who were supposed to show the people who God was. They were the ones who taught the law. They were the ones that, and it was when we say law, religious law, like how you're supposed to live, who is God. They were supposed to interpret the Old Testament scriptures for people. So they were the authorities on who God is. Is. Now you have this Jesus coming along who's not trained as a rabbi and because his parents weren't rabbis. Um, his parents were, his parent was, his dad was a carpenter and he was a carpenter. So you have this person coming along who doesn't have the religious pedigree um, that these other teachers and religious leaders of the law. He doesn't seem to follow the law to the T like the Pharisees did. That's what they were. They were law observant people. Um, they weren't official clergy, but they were just people who were considered, they were a, a part of a practice who, um, 
were very religiously devout and observant. And they were, again, experts in who God is. And now this Jesus coming along and talking about God and doing things, miracles and power, and people are starting to listen to him and follow him. So now the religious leaders are looking at him closely saying, what's he saying about God? And, and they thought, rightly so in their mind, it's our job to make sure that he's, he's representing God properly, that what he says God is like is actually what God is like. So there's a lot of scrutiny from this group of people. And they are having growing concerns about who he is and what he's saying, and in particular, what he's doing. And it comes to a head at the beginning of Luke chapter 15 when we read this. Now, the tax collectors and sinners, were, as one group of people, were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, a couple things you have to understand in here. These two groups of people that Jesus is interacting with. One of the groups is what's called the tax collectors and sinners. And you'll find this as a repeated theme in Luke. Even though they were different people, he groups them together. And the reason he groups them together is the tax collectors were considered the scum of society. And the reason is they were Jewish people who had been enlisted by Rome to collect taxes from their own people. And, and this wasn't like you think the CRA takes their pound of flesh. This is, these were 90 to 95% taxation that Rome took from them, like basically to keep them completely poor and under their thumb and to build the Roman Empire and the Roman roads and the Roman army, which oppressed them. And so it was so brutal that the taxes they gave was to a military that oppressed them and took their land from them. What was even worse, though, was that their own people, Jewish people, had the job of collecting taxes. And, and it wasn't like, sorry, guys, I got to do this. They skimmed off the top. They took more than they needed. So they were wealthy. They were profiting off the backs of their own people, uh, empowered by a brutal empire. And so they were hated, and not just hated by everybody. The religious people were like, these people don't belong. To, they are sinners. What they are doing is against God. Because if you were against your own people and, a, and like helping the empire that was oppressing your political system and your government and your military and your people and land, well, you were an enemy of God. And so the religious people said the tax collectors are the worst. And then the sinners would have included prostitutes and everybody else that they thought was unholy and cut off by God. The problem was this group of people constantly seemed to be around Jesus and, and listening to him and coming close to him. And even worse, they said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, they're talking about something really important that at first glance we go, well, what does this have to do with whether God is loving or not? But it's so important. He's, they say here, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And they're talking about two sides of the same coin. See, that the table... In, in Near Eastern culture in first century was, was probably the most important um, uh, element of a governing life, other than religious life in the temple, was the table. It was where you ate with people. And I'm and you're saying, of course, no, no. But there was no drive-throughs and people eating outside of their homes or whatever. You ate in your home, and you ate around a table with everybody in your family. Often people lived with in the same home or in the same compound um, extended relatives, multiple people. And so at the dinner table, the meal table every evening um, was your family. And that's how you um, expressed love. It's how you showed honor. And in fact, who you had at your table and who you invited in either increased your honor or decreased your honor. And you always wanted more honor. So you would always only want people at your table that were your family because you had an obligation to care for each other and say, hey, blood relatives, and people who were honorable. It was a big thing if somebody honorable came to your home and you hosted them um, because that meant your honor stock went up. And so you wanted honorable people at your table and you wanted to be invited to important people's house. If you were hosted by somebody important, that meant your honor stock went up too. 
And the, and the Pharisees and religious leaders are saying there is something drastically wrong with this man, Jesus, because he welcomes them. In other words, he invites them in. Now, Jesus, we know, didn't have one place where he lived, but wherever he was um, the host of someone's home, he would invite these people and he would let them in. And he goes and eats with them. In other words, he says yes to their invitations to be invited into their table. And this was a huge issue for them because at the table was not just the exchange of food and not just the exchange of sort of, um, you know, cordiality, but like acceptance, love, and, and actually a deep, intimate connection of relationship. When you eat with someone, when you break bread with someone, and some of you are from cultures where you know this is true. You don't close a business deal. You don't uh, you know, do anything without actually having a meal together. Well, this was how it all worked then. And it prompted what one Lucan scholar, um, New Testament scholar, Joel Green, puts it this way. He says, Jesus thus behaves towards these outsiders, these unclean, contemptible persons of ignoble status, that's how they were seen, as though they were acceptable, as though they were his own kin. Do you get that? That this is the reason they, the Pharisees had such an issue <clears throat> with what he was doing was because this, was, this is actually like family. This is, this is what you're saying they are. And Jesus, um, by doing that, was actually saying, if I represent God, you know, by how I'm talking about who we're doing, and I eat with you, not only am I accepting you, God is accepting you. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders could not accept it. They said, this is a problem. And it says they were grumbling and complaining against him. How could he do this? Because basically what he was saying was, these people are accepted by me, and therefore they are accepted by God, which means they are your family too. Right? He's saying to the religious leaders and the Pharisees, hey, you are the people <clears throat> who claim you're close to God. Well, I know God as Father, and as I'm eating meals with them, I am accepting them as my own kin, as my own family, just as God does, which means that's what you need to do. And in then they were like, no way. You cannot eat with them. You can't do this. You're extending an invitation of family, of intimacy. You are inviting them in to the household, to the family of God. And there's no way God would do that. And so they're grumbling about it. And it gets to this point in chapter 15 where <clears throat> this happens. It's the very first two verses in chapter 15. So you have to see then everything else that Jesus says in the rest of chapter 15 as a response to this. And in response to this, Jesus tells three stories. And the stories all have the same pattern. They're all different, each of them. Um, Lost, found, party. Now, they're all what we would call parables. In other words, they're fictitious stories, but they were told to explain truth. Okay, so there were stories that weren't real to try to explain to people things that were real. Okay, and so they were called parables. And <clears throat> the three stories follow this pattern <clears throat> of the lost, found party. And, and Jesus begins first with the story, maybe you're familiar with it, of a shepherd who has 100 sheep. What if you lost one out of 100? And he says, it was almost a rhetorical question. Wouldn't the shepherd go and find the one that was lost and bring him home? And when he brings the sheep home, wouldn't he call his friends and say, come on, let's have a party and rejoice. You know, I got this one out of a hundred, still valuable. Um, obviously probably a wealthy person because the average person would maybe own 10 to 15 sheep. So this is a wealthy person, but still you'd go get it. And they'd be like, yeah, yeah, you would. He says, that's how heaven, you'll read that in the text, heaven rejoices every time that happens. And he brings heaven. In other words, God sees this and celebrates. God's part of the party. And he said, that's how God's like when sinners come home. God rejoices. One out of a hundred sheep. And he says, well, what if, what if a woman, imagine a woman lost 
Um, she had 10 coins and she lost one. In other words, she had 10 coins. In other words, that's all she had. So now it's not 1%, what out of 100. Now I'm doing some math for you. I know some of you studying at home, you're doing school at home, you're with me, right? Um, not just one out of 100, one out of 10, 10%. What if she only had 10 coins and she lost one of them? Wouldn't she do everything, sweep and light a lamp and look until she found it? And when she found it, wouldn't she rejoice and have a party? And, that's, and heaven would join that party. That's how heaven feels when a sinner's found. Lost sheep, one out of 100. Lost coin, one out of 10. Okay, but what if you lost a son? So when Jesus kind of, he sets up the first two stories just so he can drop a bomb on the third one. He says, a sheep, losing a sheep is one thing. Losing a coin is another thing. What if you lost a son? And so Jesus begins to tell the story and the story that was read for you earlier. And maybe it's familiar to you. Maybe you've never heard it before, but either way, pretty easy to understand. It's a father with two sons. And, and it's like if we were watching a play, we said that Jesus is the father and two sons, and people are leaning in, listening, right? And then if you're watching a play, this, the older son walks off stage for a moment. He's, and so we're just thinking about the younger son. And so the younger son comes to his father, it says, Jesus says the story, and says to his father, listen, I want my share of the inheritance. Now, it wouldn't have been a 50% share. The older brother would have gotten more of it. But he would have, if the guy owned land, he was a wealthy landowner. Those were wealthier people in society. He's asking for his share. Now, this was a, an offensive thing even to ask because it's not like it, uh, all of it was in liquid assets. It all would have been in the farm and in the land and whatever and the livestock and everything like that, people he rented the land to and all of that. So it wouldn't have been liquid. And so he would only have gotten his share when the father died. And so he's essentially coming to the father and saying, I, I don't want to wait around till you're dead to get the stuff that I want. I'm actually more interested in you than in your things than you. So can you give them to me? So it's such a shameful thing for the son to ask. And in an honor-shame culture like this, um, he would have been slapped, maybe even killed. Um, and we, we don't understand that at all in Western culture, but we hear about things like honor killings or whatever, which obviously are wrong. But they come from the idea of saying, the worst thing you can do is publicly shame your parents and your parents' name. <laughs> Some of you grew up in homes like, whatever you do, don't screw up the family name, right? You had to make sure that the image of the family was intact. And, and this was a culture that they were in. And this, if you were a wealthy landowner, you probably had other relatives that lived on that land that you hired or whatever that was part of that, that worked for you. And so this would have been a kind of a publicly or publicly known thing. So, so shameful for the son to ask, dishonorable, but he clearly was shameless and just asked. But the father says yes, which is crazy to think about. He was actually willing, he wouldn't mean he would have to sell off some of his land and liquidate the assets and give it to his son who then leaves. So such a, an act of, of dishonor that the son even asks, it's shameful, but he's shameless. The shame actually gets turned on the father. That the father would even do this is actually an embarrassment to him. The son is embarrassing him. And then by the fact that he leaves, and, the, and Jesus says the son goes off and spends his money on wild living. And we don't know the details of it. Apparently the older brother did. That seems to be what older siblings do. They know what the younger ones are doing. But basically we find, Jesus says, the guy makes a bunch of bad choices, blows all his money, and then he hits some bad circumstances. There's a famine in the land, and he has no more money. He has nothing to eat, so he ends up feeding the pigs, which for a Jewish person um, would have been so uh, dishonoring um, and the lowest of the low because they were considered unclean animals. I don't know if they hadn't discovered bacon yet or whatever, but they just weren't, they didn't have, you know, they didn't, uh, that wasn't a thing. And so this is like the lowest of the low. And think about it. Okay, so he has no money and there's a famine. There were no food banks or whatever. So if you hit this point and you had no money and no home and, and there was a famine, you would die. So you were close to death. 
And so this son is in the worst case possible. And, and he's, he's not only dishonorable, he's lost, like he's physically gone from home. He's cut off from the family. And there's no way he could ever come back because of what he's done publicly. Um, and, and he's essentially um, dead to the family, to the parents, you know, because he kind of said to, my fa- to his father, I wish you, were, I'd rather you dead. I would just want the stuff. But then also physically, he's almost dead. Like, so he is in as bad a situation as he could be. In this place, probably a last ditch, he actually remembers and realizes, wait, my father's a pretty good man. He's compassionate. Even my father's servants are better off than this. Like he actually treats his servants pretty well. They get a job and they get food. I'm about to die. I know I... I, I know I can't go back as a son, and I might be going back to my death, but I'm going to die here anyway, so I might as well go home. And so he starts a long walk home, and he has a speech prepared. He's going to be like, okay, I know I can't be your son, but I'll be your servant. Can you hire me? And maybe the father will have compassion. But, but, Luke says, whenever you see a big but, the big butts of the Bible, you've got to pay attention. But the father, um, um, sorry, it says, it says, while he was a long way off, it still said but, He sees the son coming and he runs to him and throws his arms around him and kisses him. Now we go, oh, that's so nice. No, everybody watching would have been like, what? He publicly shamed you already. You brought shame on yourself by saying yes to his request, by letting him do what he was choosing to do. And now you see him, you should be sending somebody out to kill him. But you are running to him, which a, which a self-respecting, wealthy person never ran. I guess they just paid people to run for them or whatever. But it wasn't a thing you did because um, they wore long robes. So you would have to, and you don't show your bare legs. That's what he would have been doing. Running, throws his arms around the sun and starts kissing him and welcoming him. And so the whole scene is like, it seems even more shameful for the father to be doing that. But he does not care clearly what anybody thinks. He is wrapping his arms around his son and kissing him. And the son starts with the speech, right? Okay, this is my moment. He seems to be, he hasn't killed me yet. Here's my moment. Okay, I know I'm not uh, worthy to be your son, but just can I live as a servant, whatever. The father's not even paying attention. He says, he says but the father said to a servant, he, it's like he turns around and starts yelling, hey, quick. He's yelling right back to the household, bring the best robe. The robe is a sign of like clothing, like robes that belong to the sons and to the family of the household. And put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, which probably again would have been because it was a wealthy family, but a sign of being part of the family. And sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. The fattened calf was something that you kept and made fat or whatever, probably could feed a few hundred people um, and was for honored guests. You kept it because in case anyone dropped and you weren't expecting or whatever, which is what happened, you wanted to show them. Remember, you brought honor on yourself by who you brought into your home and they brought, they brought honor to you by choosing. He says, bring the fat. I know, what, I know what that fattened calf was for. I know what that party's for. It's for now. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The lost found party. The father does not care what other people think. At that moment, he is so thankful to have a son. He said, I thought you were dead and you're alive again. You were lost. You know, in other words, I didn't know where you were. And even emotionally, like relationally, you were lost. You were gone, but you're home. And he brings him into the home. This is your home again, the lost, found party. 
He's telling, imagine his listeners, you know, those tax collectors and sinners who had been told their whole lives, God doesn't love you, God hates you. In fact, they were considered the damned. You're going to hell. Like that's how um, the religious leaders had sort of treated them. Not only are you the scum of society, not only does everyone hate you, God hates you too. You're cut off from God. You are dead. You are lost. You are beyond hope. You are damned. And Jesus says, God actually throws a party for people like that who come home. God's actually longing for people like that to come home. When he sees people like that turn to him, which you hear the word repent that was used a couple of times, and next week we're going to talk about really what that means, but it, it essentially means turning around. He says when he sees people turning towards him, he runs to them and embraces them and kisses them and screams back at the house, they're home, they're back, let's have a party. This is a son, this is a daughter. They were lost, but now they're found. This is how my father treats you. You are family, you are brought in to the household. Many of us need to hear this, right? Some of us actually don't, you know, maybe some of the realizing some of the unsettled feeling we have in our lives, even though we have everything around us, we still inside feel far from home. We still inside struggle to know, am I good enough? Am I loved? We struggle with looking at what we've done or decisions were made or who we are on the inside and we can't even accept ourselves and we have a hard time imagining that God would um, more than just like, this isn't God tolerating, saying, okay, you're pardoned. You know, I'll let it go. This isn't God bringing um, you in by the skin of your teeth. And somehow you did a, this is a father longing for his children to come home. And when he gets a glimpse of them, he runs to them and welcomes them in and restores them and say, you were made to be my son. You were made to be my daughter, but you've been because of your own choices, because of circumstances, because of other things lost. You've been far from home. You felt dishonored. You've been gone. And I've been longing to bring you home. Jesus says, that's what kind of a father God is. And so it's beautiful news for all of us because every one of us on the inside knows there's an alienation on the inside where we feel lost at times, dead at times, far from home, whether because the combination of things we've done or the circumstances, even if you say, no, I grew up in a family that loved me, you know, I have love in my life, I have good friends or whatever, still there is this ache, this longing inside us to be accepted, to be loved, to not, to show, you know, we're always wondering, how are people responding to me? Do they still love me? Do they still, oh, I did this, how? We need a picture of a God who runs to us and says, you, you, yeah, you've made a mess of your life, and I've seen it all, but you're home, and I'm throwing a party. The lost found party. But you know, it's interesting. The story is not just about um, the one son. It's not one out of two that's lost. It's actually both sons. Both sons who were dishonorable, lost, cut off, and dead. It's easy to see it in the first son, the younger son, because of what he did in the story we just described. But Jesus' story goes on. He says, actually, the older son, the older brother, the firstborn son, was working out in the fields, probably having to work a little bit harder because his brother was gone. And he comes home to, to the household, hasn't gone in, here's a party going on. Like this must have been a big feast. Like he hears it from the outside. And he sa- asks the servant, what's going on? And the servant rehearses, no, don't you know? Your brother who was lost, he was gone, he's home. And your father killed the fattened calf and he's throwing a party for him. And the older brother loses it. What? That, that, that's what's happened? I thought, 
I didn't think he'd ever come home. He'd never have the gall to come home. And if he did, that my father would kick him out or kill him. Because that's what should have been done when he even asked in the first time. See, the older brother looked on the outside, obedient, faithful, dutiful, a good son. But in this moment, Jesus said, no, actually, there's more stuff coming out because the father goes out to the older brother and says, hey, come in. The older brother says, no way. He says, no, no, don't you understand? Like your, your younger brother, we, we thought he was lost. Remember, we thought he was dead. He's found. We're having a party. Come in. And in that moment, the older brother does the same thing that the younger brother had done to the father before. He shames him. He says, forget it. I'm not coming in. It's actually a picture of dishonor as the older son. And he says, you know what? I've slaved for you all these years. We realize, no, he actually doesn't see himself as a son, right? He doesn't, he doesn't even call the father, father. The older, the younger son, when he came home, said, father. The older brother just says, he just doesn't even address him as father. And then he doesn't even address him as a brother. He says, that son of yours, this son of yours did these things. I've slaved for you. Realize, actually, like, both sons were in this place of being lost. One looked like it on the outside, but the other one sort of on the inside, you could tell something was not right. This was the not, not having. And, and here's the interesting thing. By refusing to love his brother, he actually cut himself off from the father's love. Th this is the key. He, he wasn't just refusing to come in and saying, I'm not accepting him. In the end, the story ends with the picture of the younger son who had shamed the father and left, being invited home and being inside, the older brother who had looked like he'd done everything right was still outside, not in. And the father twice bears the shame of his sons. He first lets the younger son disrespect him by asking for anything and like living a mess of a life. And then he lets the older son disrespect him by refusing to come in. And he doesn't slap him or kill him. He says, no, please. He pleads with him. He allows shame to come on himself again because of his love for his other son. The love of the father shines through in the face of two sons, both sons who were dishonoring and lost and cut off and dead. And he's pleading with the older brother to come in. And But here's the thing, by refusing to love his brother, he was actually cutting himself off from the father's love. He was not inside. He was not at the table. He was not sharing the father's good things and experiencing the father's love because he refused to accept that his younger brother could also be at the same table, experiencing the same love, sharing the same thing, and being his brother still. It's such a powerful picture of how in many different ways we can cut ourselves off from the love of God, and how even when we do the extravagant, reckless, shameful, or shameless love of God is poured out to us. The Father is unchanging throughout the entire story in continuing to be to the point that other people would say, that's too much grace, that's too reckless. Don't you know what they've done? Don't you see what they've done? And this was Jesus' answer to the Pharisees who were saying, look, how could you treat these people like this? He's saying, no, this is how the love of God works. And because you don't want me to have them and include them at the table, you're actually cutting yourself off from the love of God. 
Now, before we go to, you know, the question of what that means for you and I, you know, and understanding that Jesus' story has changed our story, that his life has changed ours, that his history has made ours and changed ours. Before we get there, we just want to uh, take some time just as you have some questions. I'm going to invite you to just listen to a song that reflects on um, this idea of building our life on the love of God, and that that's meant to be the foundation of our lives more than anything else. But even as you're reflecting, maybe some questions have been coming up. Um, feel free to text those in, and then we're just going to take a few minutes and answer those. And thank you for sending in your questions. We're going to take a couple of them here as we, uh, as we close. Um, one of the questions that came in, so who then is the prodigal son? This is traditionally referred to as the prodigal son, this story. The son that ran away or the one that stayed and needed to learn forgiveness and acceptance? Um, I owe this answer to a book that I read a few years ago by Timothy Keller, who's a pastor and author in New York City. He wrote a book called The Prodigal God, and because the word prodigal means reckless spender. And so, of course, it was originally attached to the younger son who was the reckless spender and took it and wasted all of his money. But Keller points out the true reckless spender in the story is God, um, because both sons were honorable and impoverished, poor, right, lost, cut off, and dead, and they needed the father to recklessly spend his love, his grace, his forgiveness, to be willing to bear the shame in a reckless way, to go out after them both, to plead with them both, to bring them home, to bring them both home. And, and so in a sense, like, both of them were people that needed um, the love of God. And Jesus tells the story to say, this is the kind of God that, that is your father. This is the kind of love he has. It's extravagant. It's reckless to the point that other people would say, they don't deserve it. And that actually brings up something somebody else said. Um, I'm nowhere near perfect. I feel like I keep making mistakes and I'm not worthy of God's love. I think this is the beautiful conundrum that we are in. We are not worthy, and yet because of God's love, we are found to be worthy. He, he says in one way, yes, I, I am, you are an object of my love and affection like a father with a child, so personal that, that he would wrap his arms around each of us and kiss us and say, no, you're not worthy because there is, like we said last week, there's no ladder to climb, no stairway to heaven to say, well, I've done enough things, now hopefully God will love me. The truth is, friends, Every relationship we have in life is almost like that, right? Like what, whatever we do either earns us love and people love us because of what we do or we do, we lose love and people reject us because, and all human relationships and because of this broken world, because of the sin in our world, we all treat each other like that. And Jesus says, no, God is not like that. And we, we end up sometimes projecting images even of our own earthly father onto God and say, well, this is how my father on earth treated me. This is how other people treat me. God must, he must be like that. That's how I treat myself, right? I hate myself. I'm upset with myself if I'm not worthy. And Jesus says that that's not who God is. That's what's so beautiful about this story. It is the story of the reckless spending God. But I think maybe the, the, just to bring it home, as we end. The story actually isn't just about two sons. It's about three sons. It's the son who's telling us the story. Jesus, our true and loving older brother. The scriptures actually tell us that Jesus is our older brother. In, in the story that Jesus told about the two sons, the older brother was angry, judgmental, bitter, unforgiving, and refused to even participate in the celebration of the son, his younger brother. Wouldn't even call the father, father, or the son, son, right? Like his own brother. He, say, he doesn't even call his father, father, and doesn't even call the younger son his, his brother. But Jesus, our true elder brother, 
left his home in heaven, left all the comforts of being God to come into our world, to come after us, to bring us home. This isn't just a story of a father waiting for a a son to return. It is a story of a son going out, a true, loving, good elder brother, not going out to punish us as, as shameful younger siblings, but to bring us home and saying, God's not counting your sins against you. Come home. You don't need to be a servant. You don't need to slave your way back into the family. You can never lose your identity as a son and daughter of God. Come home. And that is the beauty of Jesus our true and loving older brother, by what he said, by what he did, by how he gave up his life on the cross, which we're going to talk about next week. All of this is who Jesus is, our perfect, true, loving elder brother who shows us once and for all, this is what the love of God is like. And so that leaves us in a few places. For some of us, you know, if this is your story too, this is the whole premise of this thing. It's not just his story, it's our story too. Some of us, we need to come home. You need to come home. Maybe you realize today for the first time that God isn't waiting for you to earn your way back, that he doesn't treat you as a slave or a servant, but a beloved daughter, a beloved son, that he longs to come home to to the place where you were made to be, at his table, in his family, sharing his life and his love and with his community of other children, and that it's time for you to come home. And if that's you, you can do that right now, even where you're sitting. You can just turn to him in your hearts and say, God, I I need to come home. It's time. I've been thinking this whole time I need to earn my my way back to you, but I'm actually listening and paying attention to what Jesus is saying. He's my good older brother. He's telling me to come home, that you're not counting my sins against me, that I can come home, that I can turn around, that I can leave the life that I've made me made a mess of, right? And we all have in different ways. Some of it's very visible. Like some of us say, oh yeah, younger brother, it's very obvious the mess I've made. Others of us are like older brothers. The mess is inside. It looks good on the outside, but the inside's a mess. And both of us, older brothers, younger brothers, older daughters, younger daughters need to come home. And so you can pray that prayer right now because of Jesus and just say, God, I want to come home. Thank you for your son, Jesus, what he's done for me, that he is bringing me home, that he's saying, you're not counting my sins against me, that I can come home, that I can turn around. That's what repentance means and come home. Others of us, maybe we need to go find right? That's partly why Jesus was telling the story to the Pharisees and religious leaders saying, oh, you know so much about God. Why don't you care about people who are lost? Why don't you care that there are people out there who think that God is angry with them and counting their sins against them and has rejected them and has damned them? Don't you care? Go find them. This was the whole thing. The older brother needed to be someone who had compassion and was rejoicing in the party of people coming home. And so some of us need to say, who else needs to know this in my life? I've been keeping this to myself. Yeah, I know this is the love of God for me, but I I don't care about the fact that like other people don't know that that's what God is like. Some of us need to go find. And then others of us need to join the party. And by that, I mean to let go of anger, bitterness, and judgment. Some of us, because we're like this, we're like this towards other people, maybe towards other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, we don't realize that in judging them and being angry towards them and not forgiving them, we've actually cut ourselves off from the love of God. And that maybe the emptiness we feel, the distance we feel from God is because we have rejected and we're saying, no, I'm not sharing a table with that person. Maybe there's people in whom you said, I'm never going to their place again or I'm never gonna have them over or you couldn't even imagine having a meal with them because of how upset you are with them or because of the rift between you and it's time to join the party. It's time to actually come to the table together. And so maybe God has even put someone on your heart that you need to go out and say, I need need to make this right with you. I need to confess I'm wrong. I need to ask for your forgiveness. I need to forgive you. I need to bring you home too. 
I, I trust that this morning has been a reminder, a beautiful reminder, maybe for some of you for the first time or just new in a fresh way, that this forever we know the answer to the question, does God love me? Yes, he is running towards me. He is longing for me to come home. He is welcoming me home. He has given me a place in his family at the table. If, if some of you prayed that to him for the first time to come home, we want you to let you know. Um, we would just say, and even if you're new here, but if you prayed this for the first time, just reach out on the well.ca and the contact page and just send us a note saying, hey, I want to know more, or yes, I actually made a decision this weekend to come home. What do I do now? Um, or if you're just new and you're trying to figure out this whole faith thing, or you're, you are a follower of Jesus, but you're new to, to the well, um, we'd love you to find out that way and just uh, log in.